Go ahead and take your seats. We, uh, I think, I think the, the, the thirsting for God that Pastor Jeff was talking about last week when he introduced this series, this idea of an inventory for our souls and trying to get in touch with what is going on in our hearts and in our souls and, uh, and then align them with the desires that we have for the way we live and do an inventory to see what's there, what isn't there, uh, what's there that shouldn't be there and what we find there uh, that we want to endorse and what we find uh, empty that needs to be added doing that idea of inventories. I had a job when I was in high school and uh, it was with Vinnie Romano. My buddy Vinnie Romano, who was a drummer in our band, I was in a horn band in high school, a working band called Captain Trucker. We had a big picture of the Statue of Liberty on, our, you know, on the front of the bass drum with a big boot going, keep on, oh, it was like this, I think, keep on trucking, you know, it's such disrespect. But Captain Trucker, we were a working band, we had gigs just about every weekend, and Vinnie Romano, though, had another job, of course, and I was just in high school, trumpet player and a little bit of a singer in that, in that band, and Vinnie worked for Levi Strauss, and Vinnie needed some help doing inventory. So he had to go all over the Santa, Santa Clara Valley and go to the different department stores. And he would just work for Levi's, though. He would go into the clothing department, and then we would count the Levi's. And so Vinny would stand there with a pad, and I worked for Vinny. He worked for Levi's. And stand there with a pad and a pencil, and I would go. I would do something like this. Here was sort of our regimen. Vinny would be standing, and I'd be on a ladder, working through, if you can imagine the picture, with all this big shelf of folded Levi Strauss in each, each one in their little square, the little compartment, and I'd be yelling out something like this, 501s! He'd say, yep, 501s! And I would yell something like, 36, 32, 7! 38, 32, 4! Can you get the picture? And we would take inventory of all of these Levi's, and I got paid to do that, taking regular inventories of the shelves, because anybody who's been in retail knows that doing regular inventory is critical, it's crucial to success. Answering the question, do we have enough of what we want on our shelves to meet our goals? That's essentially what inventory is, right? And last week, Jeff introduced this series, this preaching series, we'll be in this for the next handful of weeks, taking an inventory of our souls and asking the question, when we inventory the things we find in our hearts and our souls, and we consider the task before us and the longings that we have and the hills God has for us to climb and the people he has for us to love, do we find in our souls, when we take the inventory, do we find stocked on our shelves what we need to meet those goals. And in presenting us with that introduction last week, and the question is, are you thirsty for God? It was last week. Do you find a thirst for God when you do the inventory of your souls? Jeff also introduced us to a, uh, a guiding text as part of Psalm 139, the last portion of one, Psalm 139, uh, verses 23 through 24, where it says, after uh, naming in this psalm. Go read that psalm. That's a beautiful and rich psalm talking about how well God sees and how much he cares and how engaged he is. And he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. 
See if there be any offensive. And Pastor Jeff explained, it was pretty interesting to hear him explain this, the idea of see if there be any offensive or any pain causing or, or hurtful way in me. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so they took the Old Testament and then translated it into Koine Greek to serve the, the Jews who were dispersed. So you have their scholars' understanding of what the Old Testament's saying, but expressed in Greek. So it gives you an, even another angle at what they might have sensed the meaning was. And that translation is the word lawlessness, or any way in me that's contrary to your values or your standards or your way of living. See if there be any offensive, pain-causing, hurtful, contrary to your values way in me. And then lead me in the way that is everlasting instead, sort of implied. Search me, O God. Show me where my shelves need restocking or reshelving or replenishing, reshuffling. Inventory me, O God, and help me to measure the essentials of a Christian soul and how I'm progressing with them. That's that prayer in Psalm 139. Because taking regular inventory, just like in retail, as trivial as that sounds, taking regular inventory of our souls and being aware of what's there that needs to be there, what's there that should not be there, what isn't there that we need to place there, it's crucial for succeeding in our walks with Jesus. During the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell was Lord Protector of England. And there was a, so he had a lot of power and a lot of influence. And there was a soldier who had done some things that were worthy of punishment, and he was sentenced to death. He was going to be shot for his crimes, and Cromwell had said, because of those crimes, you're going to be shot at the end of the day, and the execution is to take place at the ringing of today's evening bell. So they would ring bells to, Brenda and I climbed the tower at, it was just by accident. I thought I was getting in line for a tour of, uh, of the cathedral, but it was really cold and my mind wasn't working right. I saw a line and I saw, I thought, okay, we're supposed, let's get in it. And it turns out that halfway through the tour, we realized this was the line to tour the very top of the bell tower. At which cathedral was it? Are you in here, Brenda? It was uh, uh, the, the famous one in England. The what? In England, the one that's on the island in the middle of the river. It's a really famous one. That's, it's whatever had the highest bell tower I've ever seen in my stinking life, and I'm halfway up 1,020 stairs, and I realize I don't think I got in the tour that I thought I was getting in, and they just kept getting older and narrower, and we go up to the top and we see these big bells. That's my point. So, what was my point anyway? Will you people please help me stay on track? So Cromwell sentences this guy to die at the end of the day when the bell, the, the evening bell rings. And the story goes that as the day progressed, the lover, the fiance of this man, this soldier that had been silenced, snuck up into the bell tower and wrapped herself around, these bells are huge, wrapped herself around the bell as best she could and grabbed the bottom of the bell so as to muffle it. 
And when the bell began to ring, she began to feel the movements of the bell and the shaking of the bell, but it was so muffled, it, could, it just was a clatter. It never could ring. And so the sentence was never carried out because the evening bell was never heard. And Cromwell went to her, demanded that she explain what she had done. And he looked, the story goes, upon her bruised face and bleeding hands as she explained that she loved the man that was sentenced and couldn't stand to see him killed. And so she had clung to that bell so that the sentence could not be carried out. And Cromwell was so moved by her love, her sacrificial love, that he said, then there shall be no evening bell today and your man shall live. Here's the question I have for us today. To add to Jeff's question last week, as we inventory our souls, he was asking, as we inventory our souls, do we find there an ongoing and growing thirst for God? Today's question is related. As we inventory our souls as Christians and seek to climb the hills, God asks us to climb do we find in our hearts, in our souls, the kind of sacrificial, bell-clinging, life-promoting love of Christ? I mentioned earlier uh, in our gathering that uh, you fight the wars of God, except the problem is that Jesus asks us to fight battles going down the hill into the mess, with this sort of a chant. Forgive your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. And I can just see Jesus going down in the battle where the people at the bottom of the hill are ready to take off your head. And if I'm going to fight the way Jesus fights, I walk down there and I lay down my sword and open my arms. And I thought, yeah, and a guy, that could cost a guy his life. The question today is as we inventory our souls, do we find in them that kind of reckless love that God displays for us? That's the question. And do we find when we go there that we're moving toward growth in that kind of love for our culture, for our world, for our friends, for our enemies, for our exes, for our beloved, for our condemned friends? Do we find that we're growing toward that kind of love? Or are we stagnant? Or, this could be a scary thought, might we go there and find there's, there are entire shelves that are empty that need to be restocked. That I find it much easier to have disdain and disgust, no love for those with whom I disagree, for those who really bother me. Which way are we going? That's the question of the day. To do that, I want to move to a couple of texts. Interestingly enough, they're both the number 13. 1 Corinthians 13, John 13. And reiterate that question as we read these texts and look at some of the hallmarks of it. 1 Corinthians 13, 
is our willingness to muffle the curfew bells for people we encounter increasing or decreasing as we consider the health of our soul. And first is, what does that kind of love look like? In 1 Corinthians 13, many of you are really familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you, when you got engaged, memorized 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you, at your, if it was a Christian ceremony, there's high likelihood you would have had this text even read at your, at your wedding ceremony. Regardless of how you deploy it or employ it, it tells us what love looks like. It doesn't really define love. 1 Corinthians 13 actually describes love. It's the, I mean, how can you define love? The best you can do is to really thoughtfully describe it. But look at some of the marks of love. And as I, as I rehearse these, not for the first time for sure, ask that question. Am I moving toward that? Stagnant in it? Or have I drifted away from it? Are my shelves full? Do they need to be straightened out? Are they empty? Because here's what love looks like. This is bell-clinging, life-saving love. The description. Verse 4 through 8. I think I'll read the whole chapter, but we're going to come back to 4 through 8. But it's good to hear this again. If I speak, chapter 13, 1 Corinthians, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Remember, this is written in a context. And so this is written to a church that had gotten out of whack. Some shells were overstocked, some shells were empty, some shells were all mixed up. Nobody could find anything there because who knew what sizes were in that slot. And so this church needs to have perspective. This is a perspective challenge given to the Corinthian church. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I don't have love, what's the point? I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And you recognize, don't you, that I'm reading things. All these things are good things. Paul's not saying, if I, uh, if I cause all kinds of people pain and awful life, but I don't have love. No, he's saying, like, if I do good things, but don't have love, what's the point? I have nothing. And then he begins to describe love at verse 4. Love is patient, it's kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it's not proud, does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, it never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. Because basically it becomes irrelevant. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when we have this completeness, when the full kingdom of God comes, when everything will is, finally is as it should be, what is in part disappears. It's kind of like this. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became an, an adult, I put... put the ways of childhood behind me, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then, when the fullness comes, when the fullness of the kingdom of God comes, then we're going to see face to face. Think of this, that no one has seen God at any time, but Jesus has explained him to us. But now Paul's speaking of a time when we will see him face to face and not die. 
there'll be this simpatico that's complete. Now I know in part, but then, then I will know as fully as I'm currently known. And then he says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, all good things. The greatest of these are love. Is love. Let's go back over that because here's what love looks like. I'll rehearse it again. From verse 4, you've got these. Love is patient. It's always kind. I would say it's secure. It's not jealous. There's not this envy, this, man, you've got what I don't have, and I wish I could be something more than I am, and I don't like. It, it, there's a security, a mature security in love. And it's humble. Gentle. And in verse 5, you have these things mentioned. Again, are we moving toward this as we inventory our souls? Are we stagnant? Have we grown stagnant? Or have we actually learned to move away from this because of all sorts of forces? By the way, time out. You understand that from every angle, the message is coming to us to do just the opposite of this. We don't live in a culture that says, lay down your sword, love and pray for those you perceive as your enemies. We live in a culture that says, pick up your sword. We reward you picking up your sword. You're a stallion and a winner when you pick up your sword. Defeat, beat them, have power over people. But love treats people decently is really the force of that in verse 5. It does not dishonor others, the text says. That has the sense of treating people with decency. You don't embarrass people. You treat them with kindness and decency, even when you see things in exactly the opposite way as them. They're human beings. I'll mention for, I think, about the hundredth time in the last 13 or 14 years that I've been here that we tried, although we didn't model it very well always, I think at least I didn't, but we tried. And we taught this verbiage to our children that the, that the and one of my children is here right now, so she knows, I know you taught it. <laughs> didn't always live it, and I admit that. We taught that the only prerequisite for being treated with dignity is being human. And I might say that even should probably go to dogs, not cats. Cats, uh. (laughs) the only prerequisite for being treated with dignity is being human. Love treats people decently. And then in verse 5 too, this love that we're describing is generous. So it's not just concerned with itself. It thinks it's like a like treats life sort of like a chess game. Like you don't just think about the next move, you think about several moves in advance. And in the way we treat people, if we're really moving toward love as we're inventorying our souls, inventorying our souls, we want to be growing in our ability to uh, be generous with people, not just think about how this affects us, but how does this affect my culture? How will this decision affect my grandchildren? How do the decisions my generation makes today affect the generation that follows me? What kind of debt am I leaving them? That's not a political question. That's a, that's a spiritual question. What kind of a world are we creating for them? What kind of values are we giving to them? How are we training them so that they can live with success and some level of joy? 
Then in verse 6, so it's generous. It's not just concerned with itself. Verse 6, what does love look like? The looks of love. Verse 6 says that love rejoices in truth. Love loves truth. You've got to understand this. Catch this. Truth and love, they always go together in our faith. Truth and love, they must be inseparable. Truth and love. If you try to have one without the other, you end up with neither. Do I need to say that again? Truth and love. To attempt to have one without the other results in you having neither. Love values truth. Not one without the other. Try to have one without the other, truth and love, you have neither. And then in verse 7 and 8, what does love look like? It bears all things. In other words, it becomes the roof that covers things. Think of an umbrella or think of a roof. And it's raining outside. And love sort of acts like this. That's the force of this word. It, it covers all things. People can come in there when it's storming outside under your love and not get drenched uh, in the rain because like an umbrella or like a roof, it, it, stuff bounces off of that and people are protected there. It covers all things. There's a difference between covering all things and excusing all things. There's still raining outside. Come on in under here, under my love, so that you don't get all of the worst effects of that rain. Keeps people dry when they should otherwise be wet. It assumes the best in people. In other words, it hopes all things. It hopes that the best is true in people. It always wants the best to be true. It'll look and it'll say, I am going to take for myself this motive from this per person and then act as though that's true. I'm not being foolish, I'm not being unwise, but love always does that. It wants the best to be true. It assumes the best until assuming the best is just no longer possible because something else has been proven, but it always hopes the best. And then it finally in verse eight, the first part of it, talks about how uh, love outlasts the worst the world has to offer. I, I love this saying, he who quits last wins. When I used to run in high school, yes, I actually did. I don't run anywhere now except to the food line. But when I used to run in high school, I had this mentality. I want to quit right now, running cross country. And the end of that race, your gut feels like it's going to just cave in on you. And I'm looking, I, see, I remember one time seeing the finish line, and Steve Barada was right on my tail. We just run three and a half miles, and now he wants to sprint. What kind of a crazy dude are you? And I thought, second place isn't so bad. <laughs> Let them have it, man. And then something cool happened in that race. Just before I quit, Barada quit. Just before I quit, he quit. He who quits last wins of all the people in the race. And that, think of that. Love quits last. Love outlasts every evil, terrible, awful, unfair, 
unjust knife the world throws at it. And here's the question. As we inventory our souls, as we seek to be a church people are not ashamed of, a people worthy of the one who died for us and loves us and climbs hills in pursuit of us. As we inventory our souls, are we moving toward that description of love? Are we sort of stagnant? Or have we softened too much and we're actually moving away from it? But today, every message you get invites you to move away from it. Who's different than you? Whom do you hate and dislike? Who's the enemy? How did they vote? Who do they hang with? Time to take an inventory. You understand, right? God loved the world so much that he sent his son to cling to the bell so that those who deserve to die would not die, but instead have life. The looks of love. And finally, I want to focus on this. I won't take as much time with this, I hope, because I only have a few minutes left. But focus as we're doing this inventory on the looks of love, but I'm wondering, what about the power of love? Huey Lewis, you know, the power of love. In John 13, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. That's happened just before this text. Uh, and then this text comes, so the text comes right after that foot washing. And then right after this text, you have the record of Peter's denial. And in between those two records, those two events, you have this challenge from Jesus. A new commandment I give to you, love one another. Listen to the power, the force, the, the kingdom effectiveness of love. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Remember, he's just finished washing feet. He's just lived a life that was nothing but sacrifice, love, truth. And then he says this in verse 35. By this, by your ability to love, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. And the inference there is, and if you fail to be able to express the kind of love I just described from 1 Corinthians 13, from Paul's writing, then people validating me, Jesus, he was sort of saying here, that becomes less certain. It becomes risky. Now first, let's go back to 13. 1 Corinthians 13 and this power of love, because Something happens in that text that's relevant to the John 13 text. At the end of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, we're talking again about the power of love and trying to evaluate where we are with this in our own souls. 1 Corinthians 13, interesting enough, enough chapter 13 and then verse 13, 13, 13, 
sets up this comparison. He says, all these things are good, they're going to last, faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. And the author means there to introduce us to a superlative. He means to say, uh, as it could be translated, the greater of these is love. They're great, but love is the greater of these. And he means to imply there that faith and hope, all, both mentioned before, the greatest of these is love. Faith and hope are only possible when there is love. Love becomes the foundation upon which these other true, very important, crucial, centrally, essential Christian practices, Christian traits are formed. Love is a foundation upon which the other two are built. You could say that without the practice of love, there can be no true faith or hope. There's no true faith or hope where there's no love. And where there is no pursuit of true love, where that doesn't exist, Christianity doesn't exist then. See how important that is? The power of love. Love is foundational to our Christian faith. This speaks of the supremacy of Christian love, the power of love. And then Jesus goes on to say that love is so important because it's the proof of his claims. There's a power, there's an evangelistic power, effectiveness in our ability to love each other. Where he says, by this, by this love, Everyone's going to know that you're my followers. Jesus understood that he would be validated. His claims would be at least seriously considered as people looked at the church and saw that the church knows how to practice reckless love as well. Think through that list of what love looks like. As our culture and our community sees us living like that, Things like treating people with dignity and respect, even when we don't see things the same way. Truth and love. As, as the world sees us recognizing that if you try to have one of those without the other, you end up having neither. And so being able to practice them both at the same time, one does not trump the other. Jesus believed and taught that our ability to love like that is what validates his claims. When people see that, then they're going to be able to affirm that you are following me. He was going to be received or rejected in direct proportion to his church's ability to love. And as we take stock of our own souls, as we count the 501 genes on our own shelves, the question is offered again. Are we moving toward that? Stagnant with regard to it? Or are we sort of drifting away from it? Do we love? Search me, O oh God. Search me and see if there's any pain-causing way in me. Search me, O oh God. Speak to me about the speed and force with which I'm moving toward the kind of love that gives itself away 
the kind of love that loves all human beings the way you did, the kind of love that pursues relationships like a parent would pursue a lost or struggling child. And one of the benefits of being on a pastoral team, and we have a, a broad team of people that are our staff, but Pastor Jeff and Pastor Ben and I work hard at having special relationships. And there are others that have these kinds of relationships on our staff team, but we're the three lead pastors, and each one of us sort of constantly helps the other doing this regular inventory of our souls. I mean, we do, we're doing inventory of our souls even when we're not aware that we're doing inventory of our souls. I came back from sabbatical uh, a couple weeks ago and Ben was asking me how it was going and I said, you know what, Ben? Sometimes I, I just don't understand myself. It's like my soul is this garden and I think I have the dirt all ready to plant. The soil is all ready to go. And I come out the next morning to plant the plants and I find that rocks have arisen. Rocks have come up to the top of my soil. Oh man, more rocks. And so I clear the rocks and think, okay, tomorrow I'll plant. And I come back the next morning and more rocks have come to the top of my soil. And I said to Ben, here's my struggle, Ben. I can't figure out where the damn rocks are coming from. They're there and they're messing everything up in my soil. And I can't find the source of them. I keep digging and digging, and I cannot find where they're coming from. You know, I mean, I think I'm all ready to go, and then anger comes up. Or I think I'm healthy, and I can breathe right, I can move forward, and impatience uh, comes up. I think I'm loving, and rudeness comes up. And I cannot find the source. I can't dig deep enough. There's that constant inventory that we need to be taking, not so we can be discouraged, but so that we can be the people we long to be. And more importantly, or at least as importantly, the people God longs for us to be. I told Ben, I keep going out to my garden to plant roses, and I find rocks. Oh, search me, oh God. See if there be anything in me that hinders my progress toward the ability to love my world, my culture, the people around me, and even the people I just as soon not be around me. Take me toward loving the way you have loved and are loving me. Now last week, take that Take that uh, for this week, uh, that message, and, and, and do that constant gardening in your own soul as you do an inventory. And last week, Pastor Jeff said, let's, in fact, let's stop here and let's, let's now shift to something we can do this week that's going to be helpful and proactive. And remember, he invited us to, at least for one week, pick something to go without that we normally don't go without, and he invited us to go into a fast, and that was to aid us in restoring that sense of thirst for God. I want to do the same thing this week by offering a practice this week, a Lenten practice that we can all do together. And in your bulletin, and that, that, that helps us move toward the kind of love that needs to be on our shelves uh, as well. In your bulletin, uh, you'll find a little bookmark with a portion of what was read today in 
uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. I want you to take that. If you don't have one in your bulletin or you only got one bulletin for the two of you and you need two, we have some extras of these uh, on, the, on the back uh, desk back there in the corner. But here's the practice I want to encourage us. You can do it um, if you want to. If you don't want to, of course, you don't have to. I took yours out of your bulletin. This is yours right here, so you can... Sorry. When you weren't looking. You should never look away from an Italian, I tell you. And here's the, here's the practice. Begin and or end each day simply by reading that. Put that thing next to your bed. Wake up in the morning, reach for it, grab it before you grab for your cell phone, and just read it. That's all mechanically. At the end of the day, before you go to sleep, grab it and read it. And if you want to go deeper than that, here's the spiritual practice I want to encourage you to do in addition to reading that text. Do what's called some version of a prayer of examine. That's where you, at the end of the day, you just think through your day. You think through all the movements you can remember of your day. I woke up, then I went and got breakfast. Oh yeah, then my son came in and I found out he didn't do his homework and then, we, oh, yeah, then, I, then I was late for work. And I'm, think, think through all the movements of your day and ask this question. Lord, where were you showing yourself to me with regard to love? How did I do today? I'm going to examine my day. And in light of what I've just read, show me, teach me. Often you're going to say, yeah, I actually I showed love. I, I remember what I was holding back when that happened. And I read this, I, I did that. Thank you, Lord, you were there strengthening me. Oh boy, I missed that one, didn't I? And I didn't even think about it till now. Okay, Lord. Let's get better at that next time. So the, the Lenten practice for seven days, I'm going to encourage you to take that home, read that every morning and every evening. And then if you want to go even deeper, do a, a three, three to five minute prayer of examine at the end of your day, asking those kinds of questions. Where did I see God around my inventory of love?